It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk, Featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders. All set within one square mile of the West End. Today's episode is a guided walk of the revenge attack on Alfredo Zomparelli. A minor Soho gangster, part-time pimp and brutal enforcer gunned down by two hitmen. And yet, what started as nothing more than a minor squabble with a handful of bruises and a few dented egos, led to one of Britain's deadliest and bloodiest gangland feuds. Murder Mile contains graphic descriptions of death, which may not be suitable for those of a sensitive disposition, as well as loud and realistic sounds, so that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 10 Alfredo Zomparelli and the Golden Goose. Today, I'm back on Old Compton Street, a place that some keen eared listeners of the Murder Mile True Crime podcast have already started to dub the epicenter of death. As standing right here, on this ridiculously tiny street, I'm surrounded by murder. To my right is the bloody deathbed of Soho prostitute Dutch Lair, and the tragic bombing of the Admiral Duncan. To my left is where the curiosity shop killer Edwin Bush was captured. And ahead is the gutter where the last pint of blood of the notoriously cruel gangster Tony Meller spilled down the drain from his infamously empty heart as well as the curious death of Charles Bellatta, the baffling death of Boleslaw Pankorski, the corner where Mafia frontman Albert Dimes had a knife fight with criminal kingpin Jack Spot, which left Frith Street dripping with blood, and the pub where Britain's most infamous serial killer, Dennis Nielsen, wined and dined many a young man before using their torsos as underfloor insulation all of which are gory stories that we shall be digging deep into later in the series. Halfway down Old Compton Street, nestled between a posh winery, a Ponzi Baker's 
a plethora of overpriced coffee shops, and an exclusive S&M boutique for Soho's more discerning sexual perverts, sits 36 to 38 Old Compton Street. Two four-story townhouses, one in brown brick, one in white plaster, but both smashed together on the ground floor to house Muriel's Kitchen. A warm and welcoming all-day eatery full of happy families, smiling couples and chatting chums. All who are sat on cream chairs under a green and white awning as the reassuring smell of home-cooked food such as poached eggs, pancakes, sausages, cereal, syrup, tea, coffee and toast emanates from inside. But back in 1974, this was a gravely grim, sinisterly seedy and rather run-down amusement arcade known as the Golden Goose. Where instead of just losing a few pounds in a pinball machine, a notorious Soho enforcer would lose a lung, his spine, his brain and his life. Pop into any amusement arcade today and you'll be hit by a blast of bright lights, the deafening hum of cheesy disco and the sickly sweet smell of popcorn, donuts and candy floss. As you wonder an electronic playground for anyone of any age, full of shoot-em-ups, dodgems, dancing games and even a mechanical rocking duck for the kids, which is usually ridden by the dads. But the Golden Goose was typical of 1970s arcades. It was a grim, grimy place for the over-18s only. Thick with the smell of stale sweat, spilt beer and tobacco smoke. Where seasoned gamblers, having spent the day bouncing between Old Compton Street's many bars, bookies and brothels, would blow even more money in a series of illegally rigged slop machines and then storm out, drunk, angry and broke. And although the Golden Goose was brightly lit, full of life and easy to see in, owing to the ground floor being entirely covered in full-length glass-fronted doors, amongst the drunks, druggies, gamblers and gangsters, a regular player on its pinball machine was a Soho enforcer known as Alfredo Zomparelli. Thirty-six-year-old Alfredo Zamparelli, who was unimaginatively nicknamed Italian Tony, having been born in Italy, was a five-foot-eight, stockily-built tough guy, with thick brown hair, a tight-curved moustache, a large bulbous nose, and mean, scowling eyes. All sat on top of a furrowed brow, and although he always wore a suit. He never wore it well, as his crumpled shirt, crooked tie and scuffed shoes were the clothes of a moody, brooding, short-tempered man who spoke with his fists. Although Zomparelli dabbled in drugs, sex and second-hand cars, he had no brain for business, no natural flair for negotiation and being married to a stripper called Rosanna who had expensive tastes, Zomparelli was best suited to being a bully boy and a hired goon. 
Although tough, his position in the Soho criminal underworld was as a seemingly meaningless pawn who did his master's dirty work. So why would anyone put out a contract hit on Alfredo Zomparelli? Well, that's where our story begins, four years earlier. Tuesday the 5th of May 1970, two men are sat in a pub at the Angel in Islington, two miles northeast of Soho, supping pints and having a bit of banter. One was William Billy Hickson, a street-tough bully boy with quick fists and a short fuse, who even his close friends would describe as a total headcase. And the other was David Knight, the youngest brother of infamous London gangster Ronnie Knight. Born in the old Victorian slums in Hoxton, one of East London's roughest and most impoverished areas, Ronnie Knight was one of five children, Ronnie, Johnny, Jimmy, David and their sister Patsy, who were raised during the horror of the wartime blitz, the poverty of post-war, and eventually Ronnie turned to petty crime to survive, having been toughened up for a hard life ahead by his father. Years later, Knight recalled, My father made us fight. If I got beaten... My dad took me and stood me in front of the kid and said, Fight him, now! And I knew I couldn't lose, because I would get whacked by my father. Beginning his criminal career by handling stolen goods, Ronnie Knight soon progressed up the East End and West End food chain, buying up pool halls, managing nightclubs, organising armed robberies, running extortion rackets, and investing in the sordid world of prostitution and pornography. What he liked to refer to as dirties. By 1970, Ronnie Knight was a big-time player, who loved the high life of champagne, caviar, Rolls Royces, and even marrying the star of the carry-on films, Barbara Windsor. But with fame came danger. And as the jealous rivals of Ronnie Knight knew, if he couldn't get to Ronnie, you could always get to his younger brother, David. So as David Knight and Billy Hickson sat in the pub, swigging back a few sherbets, a local hoodlum named Jimmy Isaacs stood over them both, his half-drunken eyes wild his angry nostrils flared, his lips spitting venom, and prodded an accusatory finger into the chest of David Knight, shouting, Your brother Johnny took a liberty with me the other day. What this liberty was, nobody actually knows. But being a small yet savvy man, and sensing Isaac's anger rising, David politely pacified him by saying, If John's done you any wrong, then you go and sort it out with him. It's nothing to do with me. Before he could finish his sentence, the enraged Isaacs readied himself to swing a punch at David. But being half drunk, and mostly hopeless as a fighter, B. 
Billy Hickson, the head case with fast fists, rough knuckles and the ready reflexes to prove it, whacked Isaacs square in the nose with a swift right hook, breaking the bridge and spraying blood across his boots, leaving a bloody imprint on the tiled floor of where he once stood. Needing backup, as the barroom brawl ensued, Isaacs ushered forward four burly buddies to bash the living hell out of David and Billy with whatever came to hand, including bottles, ashtrays, tables and chairs. And although they both gave as good as they got, the bar was in tatters and David was a bloody mess. Of those four men who aided Isaacs, one was a Soho club owner named Billy Stanton, and the other was Stanton's barman, bouncer and enforcer, Alfredo Zomparelli. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And that is how it all began. A petty spat over a bruised ego, which ended in a pointless pub brawl. Obviously, Ronnie Knight didn't take the news lightly, not just because his little brother, who he'd always protected, had been badly bashed up. Not just because this was an intended attack on his other brother Johnny. This wasn't just a random spat. This was part of a long-running feud with a gang of up-and-coming hoodlums hoping to muscle in on Ronnie's patch. And as this turf war escalated, Ronnie knew it needed to be stamped out. Any other gangster, raised under such tough circumstances, with a family to defend, an honour to uphold, and a feisty father who taught his kids to fight, would have seen red, tooled up, and gone in there with fists flying and battered 62 shades of shit out of Jimmy Isaacs and his merry band of cruising bruisers. But experience had taught him well and in the same way that Ronnie Knight had never had a crossword with the Cray Twins, he was also a seasoned negotiator 
who knew that when toes are stepped on and things are getting out of hand, it's time for cooler heads to prevail. A peace conference was arranged on Thursday the 7th of May 1970 in the Latin Quarter nightclub at 13-17 Wardour Street, situated just off Leicester Square, at the entrance to London's Chinatown and barely a two-minute walk from Old Compton Street. Being one of the West End's best nightclubs and cabarets, the Latin Quarter was the place to be, where plebs rubbed shoulders with celebs and even the occasional West End gangster. But with it still being early, when Ronnie, Johnny and David Knight descended into the bowels of the dark cavernous club, with headcase Billy Hickson at their side, his fists forever twitchy, even for their liking, the club was ominously quiet. Although he was a regular frequenter of the Latin Quarter, Jimmy Isaacs, the half-cut hoodlum who'd left David Knight all bruised, bandaged and bloodied, wasn't there that night. And to be honest, as it was early on a Thursday, no one was. The place was dead. The supposed peace conference was a washout. And so, with no one there and nothing going on, Johnny Knight headed off for a piss. The second he was out of sight, Billy Stanton, the owner of the Latin Quarter and one of the four men who'd given David a damn good kicking, sauntered onto the dance floor, instantly eyeballing Ronnie and his rather battered brother David. The mood was tense as the rivals stood inches apart. The room was silent and all that could be heard was their breath. But for once, Billy Stanton's right hand wasn't balled up into a fist. No, this time it was outstretched and open. The hand of friendship and forgiveness was extended to Ronnie, an apologetic grimace on his face, and the look of a man who knew that things had gotten out of hand. Ronnie smiled and went to shake Stanton's hand. Less than a minute later, one of the men would be dead. Hickson, who had been with David when the boys attacked, having splattered Isaac's nose and now sporting his own injuries, having been scarred across the face and chest with a broken beer bottle. Billy Hickson wasn't here for peace. He was here to give them a piece of his mind, as well as half a pound of fists. And when he saw Ronnie Knight and Billy Stanton about to shake hands, the headcase flew off the handle. What the fuck are you doing, you prat? Hickson screamed. And that's all the moment took, to tip it over from reconciliation to revenge. The room was a powder keg of raw emotions and tension, and Hickson was the spark. Suddenly, everyone's backs were up, fists were clenched, eyes were wide, and as Hickson stood nose to nose with Stanton, from the darkness of the bar, the cabaret's burly bouncer, Alfredo Zomparelli, stepped in. 
what happened next can only be described as a melee. Tables were tipped over, chairs were flying, bottles were smashed, fists were flying and faces were pummeled. As years of frustrated hatred was unleashed by both sides, who settled old scores with their knuckles. It was then, in the midst of the darklit carnage in the cabaret bar, that the fiery-tempered tough guy, Alfredo Zomparelli, quickly slipped into the nearby kitchen, pulled open a drawer, and dived back out into the frenzy of fists and flying boots, having tooled himself up with a 12-inch carving knife. Having relieved himself of half a pint of piddle, as Johnny Knight left the loo, unaware of the powder keg which had just exploded, he heard a right royal ruckus in the club, a mix of screaming, shouting and smashing, as the long-standing feud erupted into World War Three. As he ran along the corridor, he saw Ronnie Knight, illuminated by a spotlight, wielding the full length of a metal bar stool, like a lion tamer would to keep a ferocious lion at arm's length. As Zumparelli, at the end of the bar stool stood, his eyes wild, his breathing deep, and in his hand, he clutched a blood-stained knife. But the blood wasn't Ronnie's. As Johnny stopped on the stairs, his brain racing to catch up to the horror that had taken place, he saw, staggering towards him, with ghostly white skin and drenched in blood, was his younger brother David. David collapsed at the foot of the stairs, having been stabbed twice in the back. With the full force of the 12-inch blade driving so deep into his body, that it broke five ribs, severed a lung, and the thick steel blade impaled his heart. David stood no chance, and as he lay there, lying in an ever-increasing circle of blood, as it spurted from the half-hidden but gaping hole in his chest, as Ronnie cradled his brother's head in his arms, not realizing how dire the situation was, Ronnie said, Come on, Dave, get it together, mate. A few moments later, David Knight died. Ten days later, Ronnie and Johnny Knight buried their youngest brother, David. And Ronnie swore that, with every last breath, that he would see Zomparelli dead, stating, With him alive, the hate in me would eventually kill me as well. Alfredo Zomparelli was now a marked man. Not only was he wanted by the police for the murder of David Knight, but also by every gangster with a name to make and a score to settle. So having dumped his bloody clothes in a locker in Leicester Square, Zomparelli boarded the night ferry to Dover and dashed back to his native Italy. But with his face plastered across every newspaper, in every country across Europe, and fearing that Knight's cronies would find him sooner or later, Zomparelli handed himself into the police at Heathrow Airport 
just three weeks later. And in November 1970, under armed protection, he stood trial at the Old Bailey for the murder of David Knight. Zomparelli was found guilty of manslaughter and was sentenced to just four years. He served just two and a half. Ronnie Knight later stated, It made my day when I heard he only got a small sentence, because I was gunning for him. And with Zomparelli released from prison, that would make him an easy hit. But did Alfredo Zomparelli go into hiding? Did he move away? Did he change his name? Did he adopt any kind of disguise at all to ensure that no one would ever find him? No, of course he didn't. Like an arrogant idiot with balls bigger than his brain, he set himself up as a dodgy travel agent on Frith Street, a side street just off Old Compton Street, which was smack bang in the middle of Soho, where he would often be seen drinking in bars, walking the street, or frittering away his ill-gotten gains on a pinball machine in an amusement arcade called the Golden Goose. On the evening of Wednesday the 4th of September 1974, as was his usual routine, 36-year-old Alfredo Zamparelli, alias Italian Tony, stood at the back of the Golden Goose, his feverish fingers on the pinball's flippers, his ears muffled by bells and whistles, his eyes blinkered by the bright lights, his brain focused solely on getting the highest score. And as he followed the pinball, pointlessly bouncing around, he stood facing the wall, his back to the large glass-panelled doors, which covered the entire front of the arcade. Watching from across the street, hidden by shadows, their faces obscured by darkness, stood two men, who were watching, waiting, armed with 44 revolvers, and ready to pounce. But this wasn't Ronnie or Johnny Knight. Conveniently, both brothers were elsewhere that evening, with alibis which would cement their innocence. But standing across the street was a hitman named George Bradshaw, and 21-year-old Nicky Gerrard, the son of the notorious crime boss Alfie Gerrard, who'd approached Ronnie Knight with a proposition to kill Zomparelli and keep Knight's hands clean. With the evening drawing in and the street being busy with drinkers, but the handful of regulars in the half-empty arcade being easily distracted by the steady thunk as the slot machines swallowed their money, Gerard and Bradshaw walked swiftly in, sidled up behind Zomparelli, and without any hesitation, fired three shots into his back, one through his head, and disappeared into the darkness. As the Italian's lifeless corpse slumped over the pinball machine, his blood dripping down the flippers, the glass cracked by the dead weight of his slowly cooling torso, 
and the scoreboard speckled with blood and sprayed with little flecks of brain. Ronnie Knight denied ordering the hit on Alfredo Zomparelli, the man who had killed his baby brother, instead admitting, The next thing I know, Gerard comes up. He says he's done it. I'll give him a thousand pounds. I said, go, have a drink on me. It wasn't prearranged. It wasn't nothing. My satisfaction was to do it myself. And I was looking for him everywhere. I wanted him. But someone beat me to it. After a three-day murder trial at the Old Bailey, which began on the 10th of November 1980, in which George Bradshaw, one of those two hitmen, who had confessed to killing Alfredo Zomparelli, had turned to Queen's evidence and had implicated Nicky Gerrard as his co-murderer and accused Ronnie Knight of ordering and funding the hit on Zomparelli. George Bradshaw was found guilty of murder and was sentenced to life in prison. Oddly, both Nicky Gerrard and Ronnie Knight were found innocent of all charges and later acquitted. Eight years later, Nicky Gerrard was gunned down outside of his home in Canning Town by two masked men who unloaded two shotguns and an automatic pistol at him. As he tried to crawl the 50 feet back to his home, one of the masked assailants smashed his skull in with a shotgun's butt. So fiercely, the gunstock shattered and then calmly shot him three more times in the back, chest and face. His attacker was Tommy Hole, an East End villain who was shot dead by an unknown assailant in 1999 in a contract-style hit. No one knows who ordered both hits or why. In the late 1980s, having served seven years in prison for his part in the 1983 Security Express armed robbery in Shoreditch, which at the time was Britain's biggest cash heist, having stolen £7 million, Ronnie and Johnny Knight retired to the Costa del Sol in Spain, a place so synonymous as the holiday home for retired ex-cons, that it's often dubbed the Costa del Crime. In 2002, Ronnie Knight released his autobiography, in which he confessed to organising the hit on Alfredo Zomparelli, a crime he was found innocent of 20 years earlier. And although this confession caused the British government to rethink its double jeopardy laws, in which a person can't be tried for the same crime twice, even though he'd admitted his guilt, Ronnie Knight was legally innocent of the crime. And as of today, aged 81, he remains in Spain, where the infamous East End gangster and self-confessed murderer is currently enjoying his freedom. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. Even though next week is Christmas, have no fear, 
your weekly dose of grisly murder, courtesy of Soho's deadliest Santa, will be plopping into your ears like a large bloody stool on Thursday morning as usual. But this time, as a little Christmas treat, I shall be delivering you something very different. If you enjoyed Murder Mile, please do like it and share it with your friends. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult with No Name. Next week's episode is... A Secret. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.